Hi guys, welcome back to Social Problems Week 8. Um, today I thought we'd jazz it up a bit for you podcast listeners, um, all four of you. Uh, we're going to have a special guest lecture, uh, Dr. Hinton. Um, I don't know if you guys have had Dr. Hinton. Uh, she teaches English at our college. Um, however, she's actually an expert in gender and identity studies. And so I thought she would be a great person to listen to when talking about gender and identity. And then I will follow up the lecture with uh, feminisms and types of feminisms that we have. Uh, so I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Hinton. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's talk about gender. Uh, when we talk about gender, we want to make sure that we're talking about gender as something that is different from sex. The terms are often used interchangeably, however, they come from different places and signify different things. So when we talk about sex, that's a label, male or female, that you're assigned by a doctor at birth and it's based on chromosomes and genitalia. Gender is not the same thing as sex. Gender is performative. It's constructed by society. It's a social and legal status. It's a set of expectations from society about behaviors, characteristics, and even thoughts. Uh, each culture has different standards. No gender identity is fixed, not even the one that you're currently expressing now. So gender identity varies across culture. It varies across time. What it meant to be feminine in 19th century America is not the same thing as it is now, for example, in 21st century America. Generally speaking, gender characteristics are mapped onto biological sex. It's a sort of stereotypical shorthand that allows society to control and regulate how it wants various members to behave. Gender identity is how you feel inside and how you express your gender, uh, whether through clothing, behavior, or personal experience. When we talk about gender identity, we think about, again, terms that sort of overlap with biological sex but aren't the same thing. Most people feel that they're either male or female. These are the social constructs they're familiar with. Some people feel like a sort of masculine female or a feminine male. Some people fear, feel neither male nor female. Those people can use labels like gender queer, gender variant, or gender fluid. Uh, some people's assigned sex and gender identity are pretty much the same. They line up with each other. Uh, these people are called cisgender or cis for short. Other people feel that they're assigned sex or the, uh, of, the, is of the other gender. Uh, i.e. their assigned sex is female, but their gender identity feels more male. These people are called transgender or trans. Uh, not all transgender people share the same identity. Again, the thing you want to keep in mind is that gender is a social construct. It's a set of norms that are overlaid over biological sex, and these norms create expectations and roles that uh, people are asked and often even pressured to fulfill in society. How many times have you heard things like pink is a girl's color, uh, boys don't cry, women are too emotional? Gender role conflict is the state in which socialized gender roles have negative consequences for the self and for other and or for others. So when gender roles are rigid, uh, they can create personal restrictions 
They can create devaluations of traits, characteristics, and individuals, uh, and they can create sort of violations of the self and others. If you think about it, a lot of the insults and the um, pejoratives that we use in idiomatic 21st century American English is very gendered language. Most of our uh, insults, for example, mild profanity ahead, we call people a bitch, we don't like them, or we call someone a son of a bitch if they're a guy. But see how that language is gendered. The worst thing that you can call, well, it's not the worst thing, but a bad thing that you can call a woman that refers to a kind of female or feminine identity. But when you're applying a similar insult to a man, you're insulting that person's mother. So you take the insult back to the feminine. Um, not, don't worry, I'm not gonna do, go through a rundown of pejorative language, but again, you wanna think about rigid gender roles and the kinds of effect that they have. Because gender roles have impacts on different levels. There's a cognitive impact, how we think about gender roles, what we expect based on gender roles. There's an affective impact, how we feel about the roles that have been prescribed. There's a behavioral level of impact, how we interact with other people uh, and ourselves based on prescribed gender roles. And then there's an unconscious level of impact, how gendered motivations and assumptions beyond our awareness affect our behavior and produce conflicts. When we talk about an unconscious effect, we're talking about motivations and assumptions beyond our awareness. We absorb gender roles often without thinking about them. That's how they work. Society shows us how gender, how each gender is supposed to behave, and then we conform to those standards, often unconsciously. For example, until a few years ago, uh, it was sort of understood that if you watched a Disney movie, for example, uh, the man was going to save the day and the woman was going to be rescued because those are roles that we understand. Men are dynamic and take charge and women are uh, objects in need of rescue, damsels in distress. Now, as gender roles have shifted, as our understanding of gender identity has shifted culturally, you start to get things like the film Frozen, where instead of uh, the hero being the male romantic interest, you get uh, women who can save themselves, self-rescuing princesses, for example. You might think that you don't operate with a lot of unconscious gender biases. Statistically speaking, however, you probably do. Let me change gears a little bit here and share a riddle with you guys. You might be familiar with this already. A father and son are in a horrible car crash that kills the dad. The son is rushed to the hospital just as he's about to go under the knife. The surgeon says, I can't operate, that boy is my son. How is this possible? Take a minute and think about that. So the son goes to the hospital, the father is killed in a crash, son needs surgery, but the surgeon says, can't operate. Why not? Now, maybe you've already guessed the answer to this riddle. The answer is, of course, that the surgeon is the boy's mother. 
However, most people, when asked this question, don't see it. They don't associate women with being surgeons. So they can come up with some really interesting workarounds. Um, I've heard everything from uh, the son is the son of a gay couple. Uh, the son is secretly adopted and the surgeon is his birth father. Uh, it, it, gets, it can get quite interesting, um, but it's it also really interesting what kind of mental gymnastics people will go through to confirm their sort of gender stereotype, which is that men tend to be surgeons and women don't. Now, historically, uh, this was true for a while because women couldn't get the training to be uh, medical professionals. However, that has not been true for many, many years. There are in fact quite a few female surgeons. If you didn't get the riddle, you're not alone. A survey done by Boston University in 2014 showed that out of 197 undergrads uh, and 103 children, ages seven through 17, 15% of the children got the correct answer that the surgeon is the boy's mother. Uh, and 14% of the undergraduates, young adults ages 18 to 24, got the right answer. So children were actually slightly better at this than uh, young adults were. But both of those statistics are pretty abysmal for 2014, which I realize seems like forever ago, but really is only six years. Interestingly, the statistics were similar when the genders in the story were flipped uh, and the story involved the death of a mother and a nurse who had to recuse themselves because the patient was their son. A male nurse was just as mind-bending uh, for these, this survey pool than a, as, excuse me, as a female surgeon was. There are a lot of ways that we see gendered stereotypes express themselves in day-to-day -day life, not just in handy little riddles. So I also want to share with you guys an exercise that one of my colleagues at UCLA does. Uh, she teaches an incoming freshman sort of survey course, so basically a how-to college kind of thing uh, about etiquette, about how to use resources, about how to interact with your professors, that kind of class. On the first day, she asks students to write a sample email to a faculty member. So she says, pretend that you missed class and you have to write an email to the professor to check in and apologize. And the way she structures the exercise, she, it, she emphasizes the whole use an appropriately uh, academic tone, um, ask for a copy of the syllabus. So she, wants, she, she frames it as an exercise in professionalism. And half the class, she gives the email address of one faculty member, and half the class, she gives the email address of or excuse me, the contact information, the profile and email address of another. And you can see these in the lecture slides. So half the class has to write to Sarah Kareem, an associate professor with a PhD from Harvard. And half the class has to write to Michael Cohen, an associate professor with a PhD from New York University. And what happens over and over again is that the students who write to Professor Cohen call him professor or doctor. And the students who write to Professor Kareem are much more likely to call her Miss or Mrs. Same credentials, same rank, same university, same qualifications, but gender biases make 
students more likely to extend honorifics to men than to women. And finally, last example for you guys to check out, uh, gender normalization starts very young. And one of the ways that we teach children gender stereotypes and gender roles is through gender specific baby toys. So before I leave you, I'm just going to include in the lecture slides here a short video from the BBC about those gender specific baby toys. All right, take care guys. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Dr. Hinton, for uh, coming on this podcast. Um, I'm going to continue with week two in terms of, of lecture eight, part two. Um, and I want you to look over some examples um, that also we see in terms of looking at structural sexism um, here in sociology. I have politics, for example. I have media examples. I have work examples. Um, and of course, reviewing gender and violence. Um, the last half of this podcast, I want to talk about uh, feminism, right? What What is feminism? Um, how do we talk about feminism? Particularly because I find that when I ask my students um, what is feminism, I get sort of the same response when I talk about things like racial um, inequality. Uh, really, it's this idea of, right, usually I say, what is feminism? People just say, oh, equality. Um, that's a very uh, kind of narrow and, and short, sorry, narrow is the wrong word. It's very broad um, and, and kind of a, a very short way of thinking about um, the isms, as I joke, right? Feminism, racism um, is this sort of fight for equality, uh, particularly because uh, fighting for equality means different things at different times. Um, and so I'm going to talk about feminism, again, a very specific, a very specific um, example of, of how they went around fighting for different types of equality, depending on the time and the place. And of course, um, we see race and class really affecting a lot of these fights. And so if you turn to slide 19, you would see that I categorize feminism, uh, particularly the waves of feminism that really uh, looks at the types of fights happening in terms of gender equality. Uh, we see the first wave, happens very early on in the 1830s uh, where we get the fights for equal rights for things like property rights, right? Remember, uh, women didn't have property rights in the U.S. Uh, we get uh, sort of the right to vote fight here, right? The very famous 1920s decision uh, where women have the right to vote. Um, and this is all in the first wave of feminism. We see in the second wave, um, it's a very broadened debate, right, where uh, we're looking at things, if you see on slide 21, we're looking at things like equality in the workplace, uh, particularly access to jobs, as well as... Um, as well as higher pay, which we don't have, right, still. We see that women still make, on an average, about 75 cents to the dollar. However, this changes based on race. We're Asian women making the highest at about um, 83 cents to the dollar, and Native American women and Black women making the lowest, about 62 cents to the dollar. Um, and so we see that race plays a role in terms of looking at uh, payment in the workplace. Um, we also have uh, works on reproduction rights. Um, this is particularly the most famous case, Road Rush's Way in the U.S. Um, this is something that we're still talking about, even though it is legal for abortions in the U.S. Um, one of the more controversial things that are happening right now is, are they going to overturn Roe versus Wade? And so um, 
this is something that that was going on during this sort of second wave of feminism. And the third wave, it was really interesting. This happens in the 1990s. And it's particularly interesting because we see for the first time ever that feminism is not really popular amongst women. Um, The message kind of gets lost. uh, Sort of this generation not really understanding what feminism is. Um, And so it's, it's, it's kind of a very interesting wave compared to the first two. Again, not every woman in any wave categorizes herself as a feminist, uh, but we see really popularity dropping. Um, but particularly this wave focused on domestic violence and violence against women. Um, and so you saw a lot of cases talking about things like rape on campus, for example. So you guys would have all gone through sexual assault training, or at least I hope you have gone through sexual assault assault training or this idea of consent, right? This happens during this 1990 waves of, of this idea of talking about things like rape. Um, we see this also happening in terms of domestic violence. Um, and so really talking in the conversation around domestic violence. Um, and of course we see continuing fights of education and equal pay. Um, the current wave of feminism or the fourth wave Um, is something you guys have lived through now. This is uh, particularly about the Me Too movement, right? Um, Really creating sort of this virtual resistance, right? So the Me Too movement was about uh, women putting a very virtual message. If they've ever been sexually assaulted, all they would have to do is put on Facebook or Twitter, hashtag Me Too. Um, And so we really see that a lot of... um, of of a lot of women have experienced sexual assault um one way or another um and this is this is a growing kind of recognizing thing that that people are trying to establish a a lot more uh, particularly in an online platform um this really takes off although not started in the media industry this really takes off in the media industry and so we see a lot of lawsuit overdue lawsuit cases like uh um Bill Cosby, um, Harvey Weinstein, um, looking at sexual harassment cases they've done in the past to be brought up in current lawsuits. And of course, they were both sentenced. And so a lot of this takes off in the media industry. Um, it's still not very popular amongst women. Um, and we still have a lot of, in terms of, of legal protection for women, um, since 2016, a lot of legal protection fought in the third wave, particularly on campuses have been, uh, sort of shortened and, and, um, have been, uh, taken away. So a lot of cases are a lot of protection that the third wave fought for to have a lot of, um, sort of protections around rape on campus have been taken away by the current education administration that has a lot of crowd, a lot of leeway in terms of, of looking at, um, campus protections or, or, um, the secretary of education has a lot of influence on college education. Sorry, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, and so we see a lot of these, um, sort of protections weakening in terms of at the college level, Um, And of course, we're still working on things like equal pay. Um, And so these are sort of the general overview of the waves of feminism. Um, The last part of this lecture I would like to talk about is specific types of feminism. Because again, specific people have specific goals of equality, right? And we don't all start at the same line. And so I want to first start about black feminism because black feminism really was the first break of these very big movements of feminism. And so um, this was um, the black feminist movement was sort of 
it comes out of the sort of the 1960s, 1970s, a really response to what is called the Black Liberation Movement, right? A part of civil rights and the women's movement. Um, and so what was happening in both of these types of movements is that we Black women saw that they weren't treated equally um, in the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, they were all, all often given sort of second kind of second tier jobs. They were in leadership positions. Um, and they saw that a lot of civil rights, they argued a lot of civil rights were working a, around a lot of men rights. Um, and then at the same time at the feminist movement, they saw that women really talked about white women's rights and not black women's rights. Um, and so really black women felt kind of invisible in both these very big movements happening in the sixties and seventies. And so uh, Barbara Smith argued, you know, the purpose of the movement, this is on slide 26, the purpose of the movement was to develop theory which could adequately address the way race, gender, and class were to interconnect in their lives and to take actions to stop racism, sexism, and classism discrimination. This is really big in terms of academic theory, uh, particularly because really we think about academic academic theory very separately. I have taught you guys sort of each subject very separately, although it does cross. But if you think about it, we have a race week, we have economic class week, we have a gender week. Um, but really black feminism argues that you can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Um, and so really uh, focusing on this interconnecting um, in terms of all these aspects that affect our lives. This jump starts a whole movement in terms of academic theory as well as activism, right? Um, so it's a really important, black feminism is really important in terms of thinking about gender equality. Um, on the next slide, we, we look at some Asian feminist theories, again, jumping off of a lot of work from black feminists, um, where a lot of Asian feminist theories talked about things like gender, but race and ethnicity, right? Because Although we categorize Asian in the U.S., we know this is a continent and quite a lot of uh, a lot of ethnicities that um, it entails, and so um, it really looks at sort of this idea of gender, race, ethnicity, class, and of course sexual orientation, um, and so it really looks at this idea of of a lot of first looking at culture, um, where a lot of white women call out Asian American as well as Asian culture as, um, as a sort of subservient, this idea that, that Asian culture has a sort of subservient uh, women uh, culture, uh, which is of course not the case. Um, there have been plenty of, of feminist movements in Asia as well as in um, here in the US led by Asian uh, feminist movement, um, sorry, Asian American feminists. Um, and so I have an example on line 28 where this one woman, Lyons, who focused on um, the feminist movement um, in Singapore, she was at a conference and a white a professor asked her, you know, is there really a feminist movement in Singapore and how feminist are they really? So it's, it's really questioning using biases of culture. Um, if, if Asian women can be feminist and of course, yes. And there's a lot of tons of movements happening both in Asia and in the U S led by this. Um, and so again, it's, it's fighting, um, a lot of stereotypes. Uh, we also see this happening amongst um, Asian men, a lot of stereotypes around Asian men. And so a lot of the feminist movement, um, around sexuality, um, both, both men and women are, are very front and center in terms of talking about, uh, this types of theory. 
Um, I, I want to talk about Native American feminism, uh, particularly because it's, it has a very interesting case. And if you decide to read the article this week, it, it talks about Native American feminism. Um, and so we see that um, um, really when a lot of, of the waves of feminism in the early cases were on the rise between white women, um, we didn't really see a lot of this with Native Americanists, particularly because there was actually what we would call gender equality in a lot of U.S. tribes. Um, we see that a lot of tribes had blood or had clan lines to the mother's line compared to the father's line, how we usually do it. And so what that means is, is usually here we take our father's last names. Um, but in native American culture, they would take their mother's last names. Right. And so, um, where usually in Western culture, the wife goes to move with the husband in native American culture, the husband goes, moves with the wife. And so you have a lot of interesting, um, sort of, of gender equality within a lot of a native American, um, tribes. And you see this happening, uh, particularly in things like politician examples, um, Pocahontas, I think is a really good example of this. They categorize Pocahontas as, as sort of a princess, but really she was a politician, um, sent to, you know, uh, do a lot of, of negotiating between the two, tr uh, tribes and the settlers. Uh, but because there wasn't really a position women did that, right? The only position Westerners could really think about power were princesses or queens. Um, and so we kind of give her that kind of category. Um, and so we, we see that a lot of example from Native American women um, in this time, particularly in early waves of feminism, really inspire white women settlers in the colonies. And as later as it becomes the United States to branch out and, and push this white feminist movement, which is what your article addresses. Unfortunately, today, though, we see a lot of um, a lot of Western sort of hierarchy seep into a lot of Native American culture tribe. And so we see a lot of issues happening um, with Native American women and a really different sort of feminist movement growing, particularly around issues um, around violence and, and conflict. Um, and so really a lot of work that Native American feminists do now is around this idea of sexual violence, um, that happen. Um, this is very much in terms of, of sort of the switch in terms of domination of power uh, that we see now in a lot of tribal councils, governments, and communities. I'm um, again taking after their Western counterpart. Um, so where Native American culture affected white feminists to look at equality, we see sort of the negative happening on the other side where we see a lot of Western culture and the patriarchy changing a lot of Native American tribes, um, tribal hierarchy. Um, and so particularly a lot of work now in Native American feminist movement is around sexual assault um, and trying to help women uh, with a lot of sexual assault um, happening within these communities. Uh, finally, I want to talk about Latinx feminism. Again, I have Latina feminism, but that is um, a typo. Uh, we're really a lot of Latinx feminism focused a lot on the... Um, colonization of Latin America and particularly looking at um, a lot of struggles happening across this 
these countries um, in Latin America, focusing on the struggles that colonization brings. Um, and so really, this is a very political movement talking about getting rid of sort of a lot of, of the colonial hierarchy set based on a lot of Portuguese and Spanish uh, colonizations um, and trying to set up a political movement where you see more um, work happening um, in terms of having more women in politics, more women represented in politics, um, as well as as changing a lot of the legal systems um, that would influence and help women more. Um, okay, um, that is sort of all the lecture I have today. Um, a, a bit sort of kind of a note about this idea of, of gender and violence. A lot of students ask me, oh, um, why do we always talk about rape in a sense or sexual assault as men hurting women? Um, don't other men get hurt? And the answer to that is yes, of course. Um, but statistically, we still see if a man is hurt by sexual assault, it's more likely to be by another man than it is to be by um, by a woman. And so, yes, of course, a woman could sexually assault someone or rape someone. However, studies show that men, regardless of of men or women get, uh, facing sexual assault is more likely done by other men. Um, and so reason why we kind of talk about this idea of the patriarchy or a very male focus is because we see a lot of the, the hurt and the damage done to both men and women usually comes from this very male dominant, uh, power structure. Um, and as I said, usually often performed by other men, um, and so this is why we, we sort of focus these lectures on, on this way. Um, and so again, if we think about bigger picture and statistical data, that, that's sort of how we, we would look at it. Um, I hope you enjoyed our guest lecture and thank you guys so much. Um, have a good week and please start setting your exam. It's in two weeks. So pay attention to that. And I hope your paper is going well. Please don't drop the ball on that. Have a good day. Bye-bye.